Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside Podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein, and we like to do that through the world of, of sports, of comedy, of music, pastors, great testimonies, books, the list goes on and on. And uh, today we're blessed to have across the seas, Andrew Wilson. The connection was made here to Andrew through previous guest, Glenn Scrivener, who had a book out that I was pretty fascinated with. And he said, Jeff, you got to know about this book, Remaking the World, about 1776 and Andrew Wilson. And I hate to say it, but Andrew was easy. He was pretty easy and uh, communicating over a five hour time zone has had its challenges, but you've been a champ and Andrew, welcome today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be with you. Well, I hope anybody and everybody in England would say that about, and in your neck of the woods would say that about a guy in Ohio and, you know, just throwing a little podcast action together. But as I said to you before we got started, from what I've seen, read about you, digging into the book a little bit, not nearly as much as I wanted, video content with you, I'm like, my brain might explode before we're done because you uh, you are not <laughs> a shallow water guy. You are a all-in, deep-dive guy. Is that is that fair to say? Well, an Englishman would never describe himself that way, but it's very kind of you too. I like thinking. I like writing. I like reading. And I've been able to, particularly in the last few years, but I think the COVID lockdown maybe was one of the benefits for me was being mm -hmm. able to do a deep dive on some things I never otherwise would have the time. So yeah, but it's very kind of you to say that. Let's stay on that because you know, it's funny. I was just driving to preach somewhere yesterday on the way there. I was really reflecting back. I had about 20 minutes and I was thinking about the gifts COVID gave me, which I haven't thought about that in a while, but I was just thinking about my intimacy with Jesus. I think I'm trying to be more seeing the good and the gold. I like to use that expression. I've stolen it and other people and really trying to go out of my way to encourage. So first thing I did in a sermon yesterday was mention four people in that room. I only knew one of them, actually two of them, but what I saw in them just even getting ready for preaching, watching them worship or interacting beforehand that I thought I saw kind of Christ in them. Where do you think we are with that? And where are you even expand on that more? Did do you look back now and say, wow, okay, maybe at the time it was stressful and maybe we all had no clue what was going on, chaotic, confusion, but yeah, COVID did some really cool stuff as a as a time period. Yeah, I, I'm not the best guy for that, to be honest. I, I hated it and I <laughs> at a personal level, and I also think it did a lot more harm than good sure. to the church. I think you have to see, you, have, you trust God. You say in the end, I think probably some things that I, if I even at the time was thinking God must be teaching us is around, you know, the sort of James 4 you're just a uh, you're just a mist and you mm -hmm. don't know what you're talking about so when you look ahead to the future and say oh well, next year we're going to do this and do that you really need to exercise some humility i think that was i hope i haven't just lost that i think there's always a risk though that that just disappears as soon as the lockdown lifts sure and i think at a personal level there were some blessings and some benefits but by and large it was bad for me 
bad for my family, bad for the church. And I was really relieved to see the back of it. And obviously it was much worse for those who who lost people or who were, who were seriously afflicted with it. So I'm not really the sort of, I'm a very optimistic person generally, mm-hmm. but to me, this was pretty much a mostly unmitigated disaster. But I think you can always see the hand of God in things and look and say, well, I, I may not fully understand this. Even, even in the worst thing, even in World War II, you can look and say, well, that's just unremittedly terrible, but through it, God has done the following good things. And I think you can do that with COVID just like anything, but it's certainly not, yeah, I wouldn't look to me for a positive spin sure. on it. That's not the way I feel about it at all. Yeah. I love your countenance. I, I I wish people would be able to see this on the screen, just the way you smile, the way you kind of laugh, your eyes. I mean, you, you've got a great, great countenance <laughs> yeah. to want to have. Oh, man. Well, I do now. But you, if you said the word COVID to me two years ago, it's just such shaking. <laughs> sure. So, Andrew, let's jump in. Tell us, give us your three-minute testimony. How did you come to Jesus? Well, my parents both got, they actually both got converted in the few days before their wedding which made an enormous difference to the trajectory of my life. Neither of them were believers and they both came to faith literally in the kind of week or two before they got married, uh, separately from one another as well. So it's a pretty amazing story before I was, I was born. And so that I, I was brought up in, in that, in a Christian home. And I, I, it's probably a fairly boringly stereotypical story of always believing in God, seeing God work miracles in me, encountering his presence and goodness, but then not being able to square it with, wanting to be popular at school or wanting to whatever it was. And then basically between the ages of about 11 and 20, living a very double life really within a sort of spiritual context would appear very zealous and by mid teens started preaching and that sort of thing. Um, Meanwhile, my life at school, I was away at boarding school as a kid or as a teenager. And then at university was just totally out of step with it. And then in my last year at university through some friends I had at the church, I was, they sort of were just wonderful models of faithful, integrity-filled men and women. And they brought me back to church and back to God. And then I did a gap year, which was like a year out program when I was 22 uh, at the church in Eastbourne, which is where we still live. And that was a real game changer because I think it, it just sort of forced that collision between, you know, you can't live two lives now. You, you have to decide which way you're going to go. And I think the combination of my last year of university and that year r- really changed and it integrated, I suppose, my faith and my work and my pursuits and my hobbies and my relationships into something more like a whole. And then that kind of sifted itself through over the next couple of years so that by the time I was 23 24 i think yeah okay this this christian life is all belongs together and has joined up and there's a consistency between what i say and what i do but it probably didn't that didn't happen until i was yeah early 20s at, at the earliest so in my day job connecting men to men and men to god as we go work with professional guys i i did youth ministry for years so you know we used to use the stat that 80 percent of people supposedly came to christ before the age of 18 but there's something about adult decisions adult time periods where people really sell out to Jesus that really does my heart well. And and I want to kind of transition that, you know, one of the things about you, Andrew, that seems fascinating to me, and I think it's probably true, is you just seem like a John 1010 type of guy. And I know, I feel like I've known a lot of John 1010, abundant life, full life that, that God desires for us. You know, I look at your background, your hobbies, your ministry life, family, to say it's a hodgepodge and a, a, a wide variety of things would be an understatement. How do you make that work for you and what is difficult about maybe that if that if what i'm saying is true about you at all yeah so i, I think the tensions in our lives where where you you want to pursue something but you don't have the capacity to do it have often been built around our kids just the kind of the kids god mm-hmm. gave us and the disabilities that the older two had 
I have had, but my daughter still particularly does, and, and she's quite profoundly disabled. And that's probably the major constraint. I think in a way it's been, it's a bit like what I said about COVID a few moments ago, actually. It's not something you would ever wish. It's not something that you found, you go, oh, great, isn't this wonderful? Look what's happened. But you can see the goodness of God in it and through it. And I think one of the things that's done is it's boxed us in and, and limited us a bit a lot actually and so probably some of the things that i've been been able to do and have had to lean into particularly probably writing actually is uh just thinking about it i think it's something that because it's you can do it anywhere you can just i, I was you know, this morning you just go and you sit in a coffee shop and you i was just editing a, a you know a bit of a bit of writing that somebody had asked me to do for a book and but it's something because it's transportable and because i don't have to physically be present writing has probably taken a much larger part of my life than it would have if we hadn't had the kids we do because i would have probably spent more time traveling i mean i'd love to be in your neck of the woods chatting to you and visiting and speaking at churches and i I let's go do it let's do that and i occasionally get to do that but it's really rare and obviously being able to go to america is i guess a huge thing and it was probably something that had we had different kids i might have spent a lot more time away from home but then strangely would have probably spent less time writing and probably less time Mm -hmm. developing in that and i now see i think no that's a major part of what god has called me to do so that's probably an example of where in a way it's like a balance attention trying to manage it but in the end it's it god by limiting what i could do has actually made me and my wife both i think more fruitful in the things we have done so i think that's that's definitely a way in which we can see what he's done with us but there are obviously there are always tensions there are lots of things you'd love to do lots of places you'd like to go and people you'd like to meet that you just don't get to but i think to some measure we all have that it's just in our case it's been probably an acute particularly when the kids were little an acute limitation on our capacity and hopefully we'll get more into that because I, I definitely was intrigued with you about capacity, self-awareness, understanding limits type of thing. But let, let's talk about your childhood years. I was kind of intrigued when I read a little bit about preschool and whatnot for you. You lived with kind of some like-minded people at a large country estate, surrounding village, sharing possessions. It felt like a bit of a Acts 2, Acts 4 kind of lifestyle thing going on there. What was that like? I mean, you know, I think in a, in a perfect world, if we're trying to follow Jesus, you talked about your parents walking with the Lord. That sounds great. We want to do it in America. There's a guy in Philadelphia named Shane Claiborne. We hear about Shane Claiborne kind of living that way on people around him. But how did that kind of lifestyle as a family shape you and form you into ways that that plays out now? And was there ever any kind of rebellion towards that type of community that you were like, okay, I really need a break from this and to split from what's going on here? Well, I was very young. So this is all before the age of six for me. So I I didn't experience that kickback. I think to some measure, my parents probably did, but not so much as a rebellion. Actually, In fact, not at all as a rebellion, but more as a sense of probably just being exhausted. It can, people can get burned out a bit, which I think to a very limited degree happened to them. So I think there is a bit of that. But it was, yeah, it was my initial, really, it's my first memories of Christian life. And it was in this sort of, I don't know whether a commune is the right way of talking about it. It's, I find it hard to describe. It's really mm-hmm. lots of Christians taking over a village, basically. And then, but yeah, there is a, certainly a, a, a high degree of communal living. There were always people living in our house, always people who I didn't know coming to live, stay, eat, whatever. It was very communal kind of dynamic to it. Very hospitality driven, yeah. I'm sure. Exactly. Oh, very much so. And some of those people I, I still in touch with now. And so it was, but I don't think I was old enough to really, I certainly wasn't old enough to appraise it in any meaningful way. But what happened for me then was that having left that, I think my parents then settled in a much more sort of, you know, solid, normal, quote, church, a sort of in Britain anyway, a sort of little Anglican village church, which 
I think that then we, by the time I was 10 or 11, found quite dull. And so we'd gone from being something that was almost a bit too exciting and novel to something that was a bit more, you know, and and that sense of a pendulum and then normalising into the kind of charismatic, reformedish church that we, I have really been in ever since was probably in some ways a response to both of those extremes. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I suspect how it happened. But I, I obviously when you're a young kid, you don't really think in that way at all. Sure. You just, you, you just give, you take what you're given and that's the way life is. But I'm, I'm always grateful for it, I think. Let's ask about content. You you talked about kind of where life has taken you and partly due to family. Writing is kind of one of your main things now. And I love talking about style and content. How do you go where you go? So like for me with this podcast, I'm super curious. Like I want to know... I want to get to know, I want to ask questions. I bring on people that I'm really intrigued by them. And other people have told me about people much like with you and Glenn. So I want, I want to get to know you and I hope people want to go on a learning journey with me. When you think about how you write, I mean, I can imagine you could go a lot of ways. Where is this curiosity and you want to learn something? Where do you say, Hey, I see a hole where there's nobody filling this vacuum of content where I could really do something about that. Um, where is it? You know, you just want to compel people. I mean, what what are you kind of thinking about when you're writing, especially with remaking the world and whatever's coming next? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's. I think the answer is probably. I've not thought about it actually. I think the answer has probably changed over the last fifteen years. So I th- I actually wrote my book first book quite young. I was twenty six or twenty seven, and my first two or three books were really quite. Basic. I, I enjoyed the art, actually the practice of writing mm-hmm. and trying to craft paragraphs and, and sentences, but they were really trying to introduce quite basic Christian teaching to people, talking about the doctrine of God, the understanding of the gospel, the nature of the Bible, and apologetic for Christianity. So quite sort of simple things that almost everyone who preaches or whatever or writes would would have to cover. I think as things have gone, so that was really a response to it. I, I think this is just a big thing that I've had to think about. So let's see if I can write about it. it. It was more flowed out of what I was thinking about and preaching on. I think as time's gone on, I've been able to become a bit more creative. People take more risks, I guess, as publishers, maybe they, they sort of, because they know you've written before and you've a bit more established. So you, you can go, I I'd actually really quite like to write a kid's book on this and you just try it and see if it works. Or I, and I, what I've generally, I suppose what I've done is I've come up with, I, I've had an idea. The ideas don't, I feel like ideas happen to me rather than, I think a lot of people would say things like that, that they sort of come to you rather than things you have sort of work to produce. They they sort of, it's very difficult to describe the process of where an idea comes from. But I think I've generally run with those and seen it as possibly of God and then just lent into it and tried to write something and then had quite a lot of trust in publishers or more recently an agent or, or friends who might just be able to read it and go, I think that has potential. I, don't, I think that's a stupid idea. And and even just to see, I mean, on one, one or two occasions, I've tried to write a book. I've got a few pages in and gone, this is just a terrible idea. I'm just not going to work at all. Or maybe it's a great idea, but I just can't write it. And so I think I've just done that and sort of run with it to see. It sounds a bit of a floaty ah, 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 thing to say, but it does feel like that. I, I feel like I'm writing something to a degree that I've got inspiration to do it. And then I will let it run and see. And effectively, I'm then leaving the decision with the publisher mm-hmm. and saying, this is what I might like to write. And you can decide, do you think that's, is that a book you would like to publish? And if it is, then they do. And if it isn't, then it doesn't happen. So far, I've been fortunate that people have generally said yes, but I don't know that that will always happen. It just has has to now. So I think probably the journey has gone from being quite basic content, hopefully expressed well, through to <clears> slightly more, creative ideas and this most recent book as you say is it was really quite an out there idea and when i first talked to people about it you imagine well my, the, my senior pastor of the church i mean who i went with he said I mean, it, it, we laugh about it but he said who on earth is going to read that you just thought it was a really strange sounding concept but then you run with it and you say oh no actually i think there is 
I think there's, there's a purpose to this. I think it could really help people. But when you first try and articulate it, it's not sure. particularly well thought through. Yeah, everybody I've mentioned this book to and talked about you coming on, they were totally intrigued. They're like, yeah, I'm interested in that book. Or one guy I know is just a very heady education, church world, cultural. He, he was very intrigued by this book. But funny you mentioned kids' books. So I'm thinking, and I mean this in the kindest way, no disrespect to anybody. I don't see you writing a kids' book. And I definitely don't see you being a guy, Andrew, who's going to say, okay, what's the book that people really want that'll be easy, and it's going to go on to be a New York Times bestseller. You don't seem like (laughs) that kind of guy. And I don't want to say those people necessarily are sellouts because, hey, I'd love to write a book that's a New York Times bestseller. But you seem like you're going to really write a book that means something to you, might mean something to other people. And, hey, if it doesn't sell as many books because it's a little bit headier, meatier, I'm diving in. You'd rather that then, hey, I just went for a bunch of book sales. Fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if anybody knows, knows how to sell an awful lot of books, then they, they're probably doing it. I, I I don't know how to, I certainly can't write a book for the market as such as I understand it. I don't have that ability. And, uh, and I, you're right, I don't think I'd want to do that. But that said, I mean, I have, the kids' books I've written have, been real a real joy I've oh you really have written kid book okay I i've written that. two two kids books oh my no goodness. but 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 not, again not in a sense of let's try and do some a bestseller or anything like that i mean like these are sort of kids for kids age four to seven they were my own kids i, I spend a lot of time obviously talking to at least have done for the last 15 years talking to children between the ages of naught and seven and trying to help particularly with two kids with disabilities trying to help yeah, them understand that makes sense basic truth. so i have done that so and i think the nice thing about obviously pastoral ministry is you really are in different sli- different slices you're addressing the whole sure spectrum you you sometimes you're dealing with students and intellectuals and sometimes you're dealing with little kids and everything in between so i have written for a quite a wide spread but never i as you say never because i knew this book will sell because actually of course i i don't know that and <laughs> i i think if i did i'd probably be making a lot more money but i love your humility not, in that. I, I don't have that capacity no i i don't actually i think a lot of people who write better i don't think rick warren knew the purpose-driven life was sure be sell 30 million copies either i I think he wrote it because he wanted to help people and it turned out a lot of people went oh that's what i want but i doubt it's market driven in the main i'm sure there are people who do that but i i I don't have that skill i'm sure sure. i'm wondering too with those two kids books i might i might get into your content and realize like oh this is way bigger than me where's the kid book now i need that that's the one i need to be reading i need to study (laughs) the kid book well no these are genuinely picture books so I, i wrote a book called the boy from the house of bread which is like a sort of rhyming story the story of jesus through the eyes of a child and then a book called sophie and the heidelberg cat which is based on the heidelberg catechism being explained to a child by a cat so it's a yeah so they're kind of slightly quirky picture kids but with rhyming well that that's all but it's a very different kind of book from remaking the world anyway heidelberg (laughs) cat will do well because my wife and daughter we got a cat we got a stray about three years ago and it, it didn't last too long. And then we got another one we've had now for about two and a half years and they're obsessed with cats. So I can get, <laughs> I can get that book. I'm going to get that book and get that for my wife and daughter. So um, uh, real quick, a side note. So I watched a previous podcast where you kind of prepare for this and you had, you were on with two younger guys and you said, great question two times. So I'm like, ooh, ooh, ooh I got to get the right questions where maybe he says it to me <laughs> three times. So I've got one knocked off. I need, I need two more. So your wife's, seems to be Rachel seems to be a big fan of yours she seems like you know a supportive wife loves you from what I can see and how God uses you how much do you think you being unique unorthodox even exploring what you explore is maybe complimented or supplemented because of your wife oh I I think Rachel's completely indispensable to what to all the things I've done and I think she's uh, a lot obviously a lot of the people would find the same to be true in their own marriage but I I think she is 
because she is also she's a uh, she she writes she preaches she teaches just on saturday she was up teaching for the day teaching on a training training pastors and on a, and a particular area of ministry and so because we're kind of very different personalities but very closely aligned on sort of interest theology desire to serve the church i think i've probably been able to learn maybe more from her than I, I don't know whether if I was married to somebody who had no interest in it, I think that would be much harder to mm-hmm. to grow, at least in the marriage. I think you, you grow in other areas, but I think with us, we, we are, there's a lot of overlap actually. We've good, really good friends as well. So that has been obviously vital. And I think it's meant that both of us have really been able to help the other sharpen what we do. She's much better at seeing the application for, as a lot of, I think a lot of women are actually much better at seeing the application for, people who are more weak or vulnerable or marginalized or whatever. She's much better at seeing that than me and has, has really has brought on issues of justice and she's just broadened and poverty and just, just continually drawing me back to things, which of course are absolutely integral to the ministry of Jesus, but things which I'm not hardwired to see. That's not. So I think that's been really vital. And obviously on occasion we've, we've written together as well. And that's been wonderful because that's something that many people don't get to to do to share their their job and and vocation as much as that with their spouse and we have which is lovely so yeah i I certainly wouldn't be able to do any of these things without her it's um but the main way in which she's mainly we've partnered she's had to do over the last 10 or 15 years she's had to do a lot more of the childcare for much of that time Mm -hmm. because of the nature of a full-time job but for me and and being a pastor but in the last three or four years she's been able to do more herself which is really exciting because of the way our family is changing I love how God's drawn things out of each of you and into the other person to kind of broaden the spectrum and bring out interest, heart, desires, things you're learning about God through each other. So you keep going here and we're, we need to touch on it. Autism has touched your family. That's a big topic. It's, it's more apparent than 25, 20 years ago, whatever. What gifts and how has God shown you kindness to your family through walking through and experiencing something that's obviously difficult? Hmm. So... Yeah, so very, very briefly, my my oldest son has uh, both of my oldest two have regressive ha- had regressive autism, which means they have certain skills and then they go backwards in life at the, between the ages of two and four. They sort of lose skills, and then my daughter is still developmentally at about the age of maybe eighteen months. She's thirteen, but she would mentally and cognitively function at about that level. My son is doing way, way better, and is amazing how he's he's bounced back, and. But still, very both of them very recognisably autistic. I, I obviously we we've learned an enormous amount through them about the way, from the way they see the world, and I think I've had to learn a lot as as I already alluded to about rootedness and seeing things through the eyes of people who have, have certain have particular struggles. But I think one of the great blessings for us, I think, has been the way that it has forced us to rely on other people. I think by nature mm. we would both be fairly let's go and do this and let's start that. And, you know, be quite, I, I think we would probably fancy ourselves as slightly pioneering, you know, people. And as young people, I think we really thought we're going to take on the world. We're going to do this and this and this for God. Sure. And then it's only really through this experience that God has used the, the children to teach us an enormous amount, I think about well, probably some of it's just humility. Some of it is, and, and wisdom, but some of it's just about how interdependence and how much you need other people. You're just like, we can't, We've had people living in our home for much of the last 15 years where we've had kids. We just we can't even do Sunday without multiple other adults participating and helping with various of our children in different ways. Uh, just yesterday, you know, yesterday was Sunday and we have that with both my, my boys and my daughter and other adults are involved in helping care for them. We just do it all the time. And 
So I think that sense of interdependence has probably been one of the major things we've learned through the experience of having the kids we have. And, and we have, yeah, greatly been strengthened, I think as Christians and as people, but obviously that has much of the time has been a very painful experience as well. So it kind of layers and layers and layers of giving and receiving grace, I would say is an understatement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really, it really has. And, and sometimes through the children directly, sometimes through what we've learned from each other, sometimes through being with others. Sure. But yeah, God has, God has been very good to us, but it, it for a, a period of two or three years, it was extremely hard. And uh, I think for the most, for the whole of the last 10 years, it has been a daily challenge sure. for both of us. Yeah. But yeah, we have also been grown and blessed through it. Sure. Well, let's, let's do a hardcore transition here. We're going to go to the rapid five, just five quick hitting, heavy, fast, light, all the above kind of questions. So Andrew, what was your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Crunching up cornflakes. Do you have those there? We have cornflakes. Yeah, crunchy nut. Oh, no. Cornflakes don't taste of anything. No, crunchy <laughs> nut cornflakes. Like honey nut, as in, oh. The, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, nut. we would have various combinations of that. Yeah. I, I was going <laughs> to guess you had a cereal that would come right to mind. So no hesitation yeah. there. I love that. What's your favorite book? Not of yours. Let's go with somebody else's. What's your favorite book you most like to gift to other people? Well, I can't claim to give, I don't actually give out, I don't buy books for people as often as I should, but okay. I often recommend. So I think the book I've recommended most probably in the last few years is Augustine's Confessions, I mm. would think. But I don't think I've ever just bought a copy with a view to giving it to somebody. I give a, we give away a bunch of the books that I have read myself and then pass on, but I I'm, maybe I should be much better at this. I'm not, I'm not, haven't classically been one for buying people a book and say, you must read this and here's a copy. Sure. But that may be just, maybe I'm a much stingier person than I realize. Well, see, <laughs> you've already hit what I said earlier about my head exploding because you did not go for a light read there with the Augustine Confessions. That's a big No, one. but that's partly because the kind of people who ask me for recommendations. So there's a self-selecting. I often people who you, you know, you want to give people an introductory book. I often wouldn't even say a book. I'd say, look, here's Mark's gospel or something. Yeah. But I mean, it's a, it's a book written by a Christian. I, I, it's it's often readers who are asking the question, which is why it's a slightly more high-end book, I guess. Sure. So now you've been to the States quite a bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, probably, two, I don't know, 20 times, I expect, something like that. Okay. So if you were in the States and you're with your family and you were traveling a distance to get to the destination and you needed to hit somewhere for lunch... Maybe there's a chance one of these places you have not been to, and some of these you've probably got over there anyway, but you got on the road sign, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, In-N-Out Burger. Team Wilson or you by yourself goes where? Well, if it's me by myself, it's In-N-Out Burger. And if it's with the kids, I'm sorry to say it would be McDonald's, but I think they, because they know it and that's probably what they'd ask for. But I would want to go to In-N-Out because I've heard rave reviews. Now, Chick-fil-A, do you guys have that over there, I assume? No. No, we don't have In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A here. Oh wow! Okay, what what do your kids get at McDonald's? What's like their go to? My youngest has just grown out of the Happy Meal, and uh, so he would, he wants to have what his older brother have, and the, his older brother would would have a quarter pound of a cheese mm-hmm. and fries, that kind of you know classic. Sure, classic. It is classic. So, Andrew, what's a movie that gets you? Whether you're watching it with Rachel, family, by yourself, what is a movie that every time you were to stumble across it, you got to watch it? Well, <laughs> this is a brutal film and wouldn't be seen as a comment. A lot of people wouldn't want to watch it, but The Revenant, which is a movie set not a million miles away from where you are, I think, in okay. the middle of winter. So Leonardo DiCaprio gets mugged by a bear. Oh, yeah, yeah. survive in the winter. And I watch that each winter. There's There'll always be a night when Rachel goes out for the evening. Yeah. And I, she would not want to watch it because it's very, it's very, it's quite gruesome actually in its way. 
but I just find it the most one of the most beautifully shot, mm. harrowing and yet powerful. So I watch that like annually. I find a really cold night outside and yeah. watch the Revenant all cozy. So I know it sounds weird, but that's that's one of mine. So no, I love the tradition with that. I love that like you you're very specific about when, how, and where you're watching. That's super cool. Okay, so last one. And you said before we got on here, the, you were you referenced this question. So who is your first celebrity crush? I think it was Elizabeth Shue in cocktail i think oh my I, I, goodness that is the why? answer i tell everybody that is the answer there's a right answer and it's elizabeth shoe well, so, okay and is this because you and i are contemporaries so how old are you i'm 53 oh wow so we're not contemporaries at all i'm 44 but i you're just more I, you're just smarter I than me watch that when i no, I, it probably just means i watched it when i was younger <laughs> i watched it when i was 12 or 13 and i was like wow so that's probably the first time I had probably like a proper celebrity crush rather than like a cartoon character or something as a six-year-old. Yeah. Adventures in babysitting, but really it was in cocktail where she went to the next level. And I don't know if you've seen on a Netflix Cobra Kai, which is kind of the TV show version years later of Karate Kid in season yeah. three, I think it is. She is on for a little while. Yeah. Elizabeth Shue, cocktail, coming of age yeah. as a guy, coming of age for her. I mean, it, it is... Man, that you know, there's a lot of answers here. There's a lot of good ones. You just got the right <laughs> one, though, Andrew. We we need to be friends. That's a great. I said I want three great questions from you, but I got the great answer. Not you. You killed that one. So, five words that were said in your life. These five words were said to you. I want to, I want you to talk about this. How did your life change? We need to stop now. Hmm. How did that change your life? Yeah. So this is Rachel speaking to me after a particularly challenging weekend or so with the kids where as i remember it's sort of an epileptic seizure had just happened and it was just uh, just completely awful at home and i'd been away and she was like you're living you don't get this you have not seen how debilitating life is at the moment for us and you have not seen how much difficulty the children are in and how hard it is for me to look after them without you here so we need you to stop all the travel you're doing for a period of months and just need to reset our lives and dramatically lower our expectations of what we can achieve or what we feel like we can achieve in ministry. And I think she had probably been trying to say that to me for about a year at the time. I think that's what she would say. And I was late to see it. And then it almost took a crisis to go, okay, I I can't. Like, I just wasn't hearing it or I wasn't seeing how bad it was or I wanted to carry on with commitments that I made. And so I pulled out of everything for six months and lots of friends were very gracious and just stepped in and said, it's all right, I'll cover that teaching. You know, no, you don't have to come to this training thing. We're doing all that stuff. And gradually we have been able to, you know, rebuild again such that I'm I'm in the States next week. I, it's not, so I am now able to do some things again, but for a long time, it was very, very, we, our life got, as I say, an awful lot smaller. And that was, yeah, that was one of those sentences probably, or that one of those conversations that really redirected me and us and as I say, by God's grace, a number of those things have are, are being given back to us and may have to be taken away again. Who knows? And we just don't know what will happen with our family. But um, really, uh, we're, we're very grateful for the way that we've been able to do anything now. But I think, yeah, that was a dramatic sort of slamming on of the brakes mm -hmm. in our lives at probably when I was about 32 or three. So, yeah, just over 10 years ago. And see, I love how you received that, not only from Rachel, but obviously I think from God, because there's three questions I hear people use a lot in leadership as it relates to organizations or teams or groups or churches or nonprofits, ministries, whatever. And it's, what do we stop doing that we're doing? What do we start doing that we're not? And what do we keep doing? And I think, you know, you stopping 
and what you did radically for six months and the grace God gave you and people stepped in, I mean, probably as significant as anything in your testimony, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, Let's transition to the book. One of the key tenets of this book is you talk about Benjamin Franklin changing the Declaration uh, of Independence. Uh, You talk about the phrase sacred and undeniable to self-evident. Unpack that for us. Give a little background to that. And then why is that so significant? And even in 2023, where is that maybe significant? Yeah. So, I mean, the backstory here is just that a week a week or so before the declaration is voted on and confirmed in Congress, uh, Jefferson writes to Franklin and says, hey, here's my draft, basically. He says it in 18th century language, but here's, the, here's my draft. Have you got any thoughts? And Franklin changes the Jefferson's text from sacred and undeniable. And he crosses it out and he replaces it with self-evident. And I think in and of itself, it is a very significant moment because the declaration is such a significant text for particularly your nation, but others, many others as well. But I think it also serves as a really powerful parable of the post-Christian West. And that's the case. That's what I'm trying to do with that story in my book, where I'm saying this is in many ways a lovely little window into what the West as a whole has done, which is to take moral convictions that could only have grown out of Christian soil and act as if they are somehow innately obvious to everyone with a brain. So we have taken convictions about, you know, of course, people not, it's not self-evident that there is a creator who has endowed people with inalienable rights and that these include, of course, that's not self-evident, like lots and billions and billions of people on earth today don't believe that. And nearly everybody in the world of the 18th century didn't believe those things. But so, so Franklin is saying these things are self-evident. He's saying these are Christian claims that I am universalizing. I am saying these. Are, this is just now a result of reason. And that in many ways is what the West has done. The West has said, well, we've got this Christian inheritance, but we don't want to acknowledge that it's uniquely or specifically Christian. We want to, best we can, keep the moral benefits of Christianity without having to subscribe to all of Christianity's more uncomfortable claims about the uniqueness of Christ or the divinity, all those sorts of things. So what we do is we say, oh, we'll, we'll preserve that truth, but we'll take away the Christian roots. And that's there's many, many other examples. And so that is, to me, is very insightful for the world of 2023, which is that an awful lot of the things that your neighbors and colleagues and so on believe are driven by and generated from Christian thinking and Christian anthropology but people don't necessarily know they are. They just think they're all incredibly obvious. Of course, you know, love means love. Of course, women's rights are human rights. Of course, you know, all these different things which will come out and they say, but why is that true? That doesn't derive from a a materialist account of reality. That's come from Christian thinking, but you're not aware that it's come from Christian thinking in many cases. And so a part of that that chapter in that story is an attempt to see Ben Franklin's edit as almost like a, a window into a much wider phenomenon that we face all the time with our, our friends and colleagues. Hmm. Man, there's so much I can unpack here. I got I to gotta jump in and, and unpack. So what about your life and ministry and perspective on the kingdom of heaven has changed or been clarified after going about this process of what you have done with a uni- unique perspective on recent Western history? Where, where have things changed for you and how you, you view the kingdom of heaven? I think it's probably helped me see the kingdom. Um, I think seeing the, the kingdom in public life as often, which is probably what, is what this book is mainly about. And so seeing the growth of what God's doing in the world is sometimes, sometimes happening in and through in very complicated ways, in ways that don't necessarily result from people with great motives wanting to pursue the purposes of God with all their heart, that sometimes really good things can happen through very morally ambiguous processes. Mm-hmm. And 
the 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 kingdom of heaven is like yeast and it gets hidden inside dough and it gradually transforms a whole civilization and so a lot of what i see tracing in the book is actually how various things about our modern world from the values we hold to the material technologies we have to where we live even have been driven by christian thinking without the people responsible for making these inventions or discoveries or writing these books necessarily being aware of how christianized they are and so if i had to choose almost like a kingdom parable to connect with the book it would probably be that yeah the kingdom is like yeast it gets hidden inside the dough and it gradually leavens the whole thing until the whole thing's leavened and god won't stop on that it's not like 2023 is the year or 2016 or whatever is the year that the kingdom went into reverse and suddenly after 1800 years of progress went into regress and will now shrink back to nothing that's not the the story of of the kingdom at all but at the moment we are at a period where for many in the west it can feel like we're losing ground in various areas in the public square particularly and that's painful for people but to have confidence that the kingdom is actually coming in and through the processes we can see around us and trying to understand those things at both a material and a spiritual level is one of the great challenges of thinking about public value you know public morality and so on in in america or britain today so when people read this book do you you think there's two ways to go about this either they just keep thinking at a higher bigger level and really have to process and kind of take what you've given them and kind of make something of it for themselves or is it like no hopefully there's some real answers here that they say Mm. oh aha check 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 because i I think it could go a couple ways there and what's your hope as far as where people are that's a great question i i do oh there's your second one there's a great third i know i'm keeping track in my head i got two (laughs) so um I want to leave people lots of space to make the connections mm-hmm. themselves. But my final two chapters are an attempt to answer the question. Well, firstly, how did the church in the 18th century respond to this post-Christian world that was beginning to emerge? And then in the final chapter, how do those lessons really serve us really well today? And so I do try and give some, I suppose you might call it application. That's probably the preacher in me. Go, I, I want to I help people say, I think these things really help. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to reach post-Christians. I'm a pastor in London. I mean, it's it's obviously a big part of what I or we do. But I, I also think that a bunch of the, the book is, a hope of its value will be in telling the story in a way that helps people go, oh, that that's joined up all sorts of things that I hadn't been able to make sense of together. And mm. I hadn't ever thought through and certainly hadn't thought, how do I bring Christian thinking to bear on those things in as far insofar as they come up in conversation with friends, neighbors, and so on. So it's really an attempt in a very, hopefully quite a deep way to equip people for evangelism. There's a big part yeah. of what this book's for, but it's certainly not an evangelistic tract, let alone a, a sort of an equipping book. It does, I hope it doesn't read like that, but I think underneath it, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Sounds like there's some parallels that way with you and Glenn and kind of what you were both thinking about your Very books much, and yeah. evangelistically. And I love that aspect because that's that's what it's all said about evangelistically tied into discipleship. Those two things really should not be separated. We've separated them too often. I love that aspect of that. So lastly, and then we'll kind of let people know how to connect with you. You've got over 50 pages in here, bibliography, endnotes, whatever. How do you go about taking in that much stuff to put out a book? And like, what's that that process like? I mean, you obviously did. I've heard that the average author spends two years of their, their life giving to a book. That can't that couldn't have been true with you. 
Well, yeah, it actually was. But I just think, it, as I said at the start of this conversation, that was two years in which most of the other things that I wanted to do with my life were not allowed. <laughs> because we had, I mean, it depends where you are in the States. But I, I imagine some of the, I don't know what the lockdowns were like where you were, but where we were, there was there was not a lot you were allowed to do for a long period of time. And I, I guess I, I do. I probably read quite fast and I'm given a book budget by my church so I, to, to help me write and so on. So I was able to buy a lot of books and read a lot of books. And that's how I learned a lot about these things. But I I did. I felt like it was all it was fruitful and enjoyable. So I was able to and I just it was one of these things where I just intellectually restless, wanted to get back to the project all the time and probably got a bit overtaken by it at times. And I think if you were to interview Rachel about this, you'd probably say, <laughs> yeah, it kind of disappeared for a while and just got swimming in all these concepts. Sure. But I did really find it stimulating. And I spent a lot more time reading for that project than for any of the other books I've written. But I'd finished a PhD a few years before. And I think that had kind of taught me how to research. And so I don't think, I, funny, just this morning, I was doing some editing on a re-release of a book I wrote 15 years ago. And I was reading it cringing, going, oh my goodness. So much of what I wrote then was just much shallower because I just didn't do as much reading. I just didn't work as hard yeah. on it, I don't think, as I would now. So maybe that's a, a sign of growth, I guess, in sure. that area at least. Makes wow. it slower though. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine 50 some pages that that just seems like whoa! I, how do you not get stuck? How do you not? Get we don't read all of all of those books either. Sure, to be fair. Like, there would be a bunch of those books which I'm sourcing, but I'm not reading the whole thing. Coming sure, to sure. sure. That's still that's still a lot. You ain't read too many books that there's 50 plus pages of of endnotes and whatnot that way. <laughs> well, if, if you're if you're okay with this, I want to pause and maybe we could do this again at some point, even sooner than later, because I wanted to talk capacity. Definitely want to get into some heart stuff with you you know, looking at some other things. We didn't even get into weirder, which I really want to talk weirder, but I want to respect your time and other commitments. So Andrew, how would people connect with you and find out more about kids books and other things you're up to on the social media places and in other spaces? Yeah. So I'm my, the, my main social media platform I'm, that I'm active on is Twitter. I'm at AJW theology. I also have a blog, which I post, which I've been doing for about 10 years called thinktheology.co.uk. And I with that, which is where I host our annual theological conference and, and write a bunch of things there. But and then I, I yeah, I've written sort of I think 14 books. Um, but they are there's the sort of one where you find remake in the world and then you click on, you know, on on the link on Amazon or whatever it is, and you click on the author, all the books will come up, I'm sure. But so yeah, Twitter's the platform I'm most active on. And I'm a pastor at King's Church in London, which is often where when people come over to, to the UK, they often visit London and Obviously, any listeners wanted to come and look us up and sure. walk up on a Sunday, I'd be th thrilled to meet them, as a number of Americans have, and just come and said, oh, we found you online. We wanted to see the church, uh, which has been a real joy. So, yeah, I would always love to be very welcome. And they should go when it's Wimbledon time, because I got to go when I was a little kid, <laughs> or to watch soccer and then fit in time with you and checking you guys out at Kings. There's no, there's no bad time to visit London. There, hey, it's, that, it's a wonderful city. You just sold it well right there. So, well, hopefully sometime we get you over in a great state of Ohio, I'm wearing a Bengals hoodie today. My son loves the Cleveland <laughs> Browns. We'll get you to a football game. And uh, Andrew, this has been a real treat. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing the book. I appreciate the time. I wish I would have gotten a third great question. I got two. I at least tied those two. See, there was two of them. So really, it was like one question apiece where I'm solo. So two questions for me is really worth more, I guess, right? <laughs> yes i'm sure it is and thank you so much for having me it's just been wonderful to have this time it's been a great encouragement as well so thank you all right well thank you glenn as well for making this happen and uh, we'll look forward to catching you soon have a great day folks thank you for joining us on the pinkleton pull aside podcast you can reach jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on facebook at the gathering of the miami valley 
Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.